0: Standing By, the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by the UPS Store Canada. You can print, ship, and more at the UPS Store, the upsstore.ca. Another episode of the Standing By podcast, season four. Hi, I'm Terry DeMonte, and there is a local stand-up comedian and also morning show host, Ted Bird. Hello, Ted Bird. How do you do, young man? I'm doing just fine. We've got a guest on this episode that we're very excited about. And in keeping with tradition, Ted, we're going to be rude, not very un-Canadian of us. We'll ignore the guest while we thank one of our sponsors of the Standing By podcast. And um, this is a sponsor that we uh, are absolutely tickled to have aboard uh, because... Who'd have thunk an engineering firm would have hired a couple of knuckleheads like us to be brand ambassadors for them? What the hell is going on with Sean and the good people at Voswin?
1: It is a bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Well, Sean thinks that that even if we're knuckleheads, that uh, maybe some of the folks who watch and listen to the podcast can use their services. Voswin is an engineering consulting firm that can help you if you have... Uh, an existing product or service or something on the drawing board that has an engineering component to it that you need help with. They do mechanical and industrial engineering and design, electrical uh, engineering and design, and software engineering and design. They can help you out in any of those departments. Sean said, to give you an idea of who we are, We looked at buying a CNC machine a year ago. I don't know exactly what a CNC machine is, but it's something to do with innovation and engineering.
0: Doesn't have anything to do with trains?
1: No, sir. Not that I'm aware of. And Sean said, when we saw how much it cost, almost $100,000, we said, wait, what do we need this for? And after listing the features we needed, I said, shit, let's just build one. (laughs) And that's what they did. They built it for less. And uh, that's how they can help you out as well. Uh, like I said, if you have a product or a service or something on the drawing board that uh, has an engineering component that you're not certain about, Voswin can help you out. Voswin.com is where you can find them online. And uh, I think you should, don't you know?
0: Yeah. And uh, as uh, we like to say about them every time we talk about them, uh, nicer guys you'll ne- you'll you'll never meet. They're just yeah. wonderful, wonderful folks. With <laughs> big, giant brains. Yes. Um, All right. Our thanks to the folks at Voswin. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Last season, we attempted to get this gentleman to join us as a guest, and there was some kind of technical issue uh, that embarrassed the hell out of Ted and I, and he's been gracious enough uh, to come back and join us. He's, uh, I don't know where to start, Uh, a writer, an author, a columnist, a magazine editor, a Montreal Canadiens fan, Uh, political panelist on the television and radio uh, airwaves. He's a dad. Uh, He's a good pal. He's a friend to prime ministers and business leaders. Uh, He's an author of a book uh, that uh, describes the uh, events uh, surrounding the uh, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin era of the Liberal Party and probably one of the uh, nicest people we know. Anthony Wilson-Smith is our guest anthony thanks so much for agreeing to come back and join us gentlemen you
2: see i'm elevating the tone of your program already engineering this we're all there start with habs fan that's a pretty good beginning
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was it was really nice of you to come back because i i don't remember what happened we get started we had you we had you on the skype machine and then you were gone and it was a whole thing um and uh after my wife and i joined you for lunch in toronto I think I told you this season of the podcast, I'm unable to travel. So Ted and I are in different places, and you're at home in Toronto, and uh, uh, we just are, are very, very grateful uh, for your time because we're recording this on the weekend, so that's awfully nice of you. We appreciate that. Well, you guys are always fun to hang with anyway. <laughs> um, I want to start. I, I, I forgot to mention that you're the CEO of Historica Canada, which is your 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 current job, but you've you've had so many uh, different, uh, uh, different lives over the, the past 20, 30 years. Um, can we start with, uh, how you ended up, uh, becoming, uh, a, a, a national figure? I mean, you were a kid from NDG. Were you always interested in politics and writing? Yeah, you know,
2: I actually paid my way through Concordia as the sports editor of the NDG Monitor. And there's still people around NDG who wonder what I've done with my life ever since I left. And I can't believe that I did that. Um, but, yeah, I always wanted it until I kind of got up one day when I was editor of the McLean's near the end and thought, I've done the things I wanted to do. But, um you know, I wanted to write, I wanted to have that kind of have a shot at having a bit of a national voice. I wanted to see the world. And of course, I did three years working out of Moscow and saw about 35 or 40 countries, uh, did all the provinces and territories. And, you know, and that was, of course, a different era when you could do that. And a lot of my curiosity was well served. And by the time I got into the dad business, I was instead of thinking, there's a plane, I want to be on it. I was starting to think, you know, Maybe I'm good right here. Maybe I don't want to get on planes anymore now that I've got a great life going at home. So that was a big part of change of life.
0: Can you talk a little bit about your time in Russia? Because uh, this was the uh, this was behind the Iron Curtain, correct?
2: Yeah, it was the end of uh, it was right near the end of the Gorbachev era. So you know, a lot of the, the the really nasty stuff of the '60s, '70s, and '50s before of total Cold War was gone, but it was still. Um, a bit of a, it was still a very weird place. You know, you lived in foreigners' compounds, you're expected to socialize really only with other foreigners and not be around much. You shopped at uh, special stores where you used dollars when I wanted to buy a car, I went out to Helsinki to get it and drive it in from there. And all of those stories about, you know, the KGBs following, you know, the Komitet Kasudarstvinem Bezopasnosti, that he was the old full name, uh, that they're following Westerners everywhere. I think not so much, um, you know, especially with the Canadian by that point in time. Although there were a couple of occasions, particularly getting out of Moscow, that uh, where you were reminded that, you know, you were not operating completely on your own.
1: Have you been back since, Anthony?
2: No, it's funny, you know, I'm one of the last sort of fossils of that era because I have not been back to see the change. And the other one was, I was in, uh, when, when there were still two Berlins, I was in uh, East Berlin about a month before the wall came down. And what I would say then is I remember that if you ever thought there was going to be such a thing as a thousand year Reich and there was a place that was going to last forever, it was East Berlin then, you know, or East Germany. And that was the one place where I was aware of very definitely being actively followed. And a couple, they tried a couple of setups, not the old sex traps, but just trying to get me to trade foreign currency with somebody who looked a little too well-groomed to be in that business, you know? But it was, a, sure, a different time.
1: So the Stasi, who were the East German secret police, were they even nastier than the KGB in your experience? Well,
2: as you were nastier than anybody, they were bad actors. And, and you know, in the years after when the files were opened up really showed that I never saw a record on me because I never looked. And, yeah, you know, I wasn't there that long. I was two visits over the years. But there was a file on pretty much everybody, every single living citizen. And uh, it was really remarkable. It was, Which, you know, the old cliche about German efficiency directed all the wrong ways.
0: Yeah. When you, when you get posted there, Anthony, what kind of instructions do you get from uh, uh, from the people who send you there?
2: Uh, figure it out when you land. Don't <laughs> <laughs> so, call the, me in the night if you get arrested.
0: Wait yeah. And so they don't give you a heads up for, uh, you have to use your, your, your own skill and your own common sense. Uh, for example, when a spook tries to, uh, get you to exchange money or entrap you in some way, you've got to figure it out yourself.
2: Actually, I'm being a bit unfair there. The magazine, I was a, this was with McLean's and the magazine was great. They sent me to, uh, Russian immersion school at a military academy in Vermont, where I spent uh, two months. Uh, you know, eventually, I wouldn't say I became fluent, but I got working knowledge. You know, enough to move around on my own. I had briefings from, uh, you know, when I arrived in Moscow at the Canadian embassy on Starokonyshevny, the uh, the street they were on, and also in advance of that. And you just listen a lot to your elders. I was pretty young then, and uh, you talk to people who've been around for a while, and they tell you the traps to watch for that seem so innocent. Um, you know, you get a pretty good grounding that way. But, yeah, just keep your head
0: up. Because at that age, you can be, you know, I, I think of myself back, you know, when I was around that age, pretty naive. You can, I guess I would have been arrested in a big hurry. <laughs> yeah, the other thing, well, you know, there were traps
2: you couldn't do anything about. And one of them was you had foreign plates on your car and we were driving foreign cars. So, um, you know, there's a bit of an old trick, which was not government plan, but. The uh, the militia, the police, the traffic police would see you coming and just pull you over, and then they would tap they would tap their uh, their necks, which was the sign for we think you're drunk. And you know, never mind if you'd had nothing to drink, they could make life very difficult. So that was when the idea was that you pulled out your stack of American dollars, which is a real going currency to to get your way out of it. In other words, these weren't high level Kremlin planned traps. Very often it was somebody trying to figure out how to score and make a buck. You know, at a lower level, but no less dangerous, maybe more so for that. Was there this,
1: an, sorry, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. Go ahead, Ted.
1: Was there an opportunity to get to know people on a personal level to put the politics aside and actually get to know Russian people one-on-one and learn what they were like?
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was a fast change. That wouldn't have been the case five years earlier. Ted, we're talking late 80s, early 90s here, but I actually made um, you know, some quite good friends. Now I had a particularly good friend, a guy named Artyom Borovic, who'd been raised, in fact, in the US because his dad was a member of what they called the nomenclature, the high end working at the UN. And Artyom was a curious mix of, you know, raised in US, very Americanized English, but very Russian and, uh, and a reformer. And, you know, through him, I met a lot of people. He eventually died and I'm not even sure we would call it an accident anymore. It was a plane crash that just, you know, the circumstances wow. still stink, so. geez,
0: Wow. And if you were to run into uh, somebody today, uh, Anthony, is your Russian still up to scratch? <laughs>
1: I think he's having a stroke, Ter.
0: <laughs> I'll take that as a da. Nah. <laughs> and um, uh, is the vodka as good as I think it is? <laughs> well, here's the thing about vodka, right? It's actually like
2: a lot of Russian food, then
0: the best you could have
2: was outside of Russia. So while I was there, and again, you know, let's remember we're looking at about 30 years here. The tradition with Russians locally was they had a, got a different kind of vodka, less ability, but it also came with a disposable cap. You just flipped it off because the whole thing was once you start on a bottle of vodka, why would you ever want to recap it?
1: <laughs> yeah. Did you ever get I, to eat at McDonald's there?
2: Yeah, I was there when uh, when George Cohen, of course, Canadian, came over. And as you recall, it was the Canadian as opposed to U.S. McDonald's. That was the easier way to get it through and uh, for years, I had a very handsome um, yeah, McDonald's sweatshirt with the logo, but everything written in Cyrillic that they were giving out the first days. But you know, people quite literally used to fly in from Siberia, and they would take back as many as they could get. They'd get six or eight, and they'd stick them in their suitcase and it, it, in the microwaves. They would just, you know, it was still a great thing to eat cold a week later.
0: Were you there uh, at the time? Because uh, that that was quite a Canadian story. What George Golan did there.
2: It was remarkable work. And, he, you know, and of course, the funny thing is that he's originally American, but it, it really got Donald's off the ground in Canada. And he was tremendous. And he was a tremendous salesperson. Uh, he really just went in and you just knew he wasn't leaving until he closed the deal. And he stayed on them. And he played the fact that Canadians have genuinely, have had anyway, traditionally a very good relation, you know, truly based on cliches like hockey, shared cold yeah. weather. Uh, indigenous presence in both countries, you know,
0: a lot of things like that. I, I worked, <clears throat> pardon me, I worked at the uh, McDonald's at the corner of Atwater and St. Catherine during the 1976 Olympics, and uh, I was there the day George Kohan brought a delegation of Russians uh, who were in for the Olympic Games to see the McDonald's in action at the corner of Atwater and St. Catherine, and we nearly, uh, I think, maybe put an end to the deal because we were so... <laughs> we were so nervous that uh, george was coming to the uh was coming to the store and and you know everything had to be so spick and span we were cleaning the floors about every 22 minutes and when the delegation arrived one of the members of the delegation slipped on that mcdonald's tile floor oh. and uh fell backwards on their ass and we thought uh oh we've scuttled the deal <laughs> george gowan's going to fire us all and of course uh it all went forward it it really was a it's a remarkable story, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's turned into uh, uh, quite a, a philanthropist in uh, Toronto, Wouldn't that, isn't that right, Anthony? Yeah, I've always been very community engaged, very approachable,
2: yeah. uh, easy to talk to, at the same time as that's your story, Jerry, very emblematic. I mean, a, a real perfectionist, and he was going to make sure, and he was never going to open anything at McDonald's until he was sure that as he always went on, that you know a sandwich, as he called burgers from McDonald's, was going to taste the same in Moscow as it was anywhere else that you could have one, that the consistency would be there.
0: Before we move off the topic of Russia, because there's lots to talk about, Anthony, uh, and I don't want to delve too deeply into politics, but what's your take on what's happening now?
2: Well, you know, it, first of all, when we saw... Uh, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine as well. Going to Kiev was almost like going home. You fly in and it looked like you know the prairies and it was reminiscent in a lot of ways of Winnipeg. You could see why so many uh, people settled from there into the prairies. But there's always been this Russian attitude of kind of big brother to uh, to Ukrainians, of looking down on them. And it was very apparent then. And that's you know one of the signs, almost like if someone from London landed in the Appalachians and looked around and said, yeah, well, you may have the same language, but... I'm better, you know. So that drove a lot of it. The other was what my friend Artium, who I just referred to, used to say was, you know, he always said, I used to argue very optimistically about democracy coming in and how great it would be. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not going to take care because, you know, Russians, we really actually don't care that much about democracy unless it will make us money. We want, we want a strong leader who will make us a world power again is why they'd come to resent Gorbachev. So, you know, what we see with Putin is that uh, he became popular by doing that. And the problem now is, of course, he simply has created no, you know, there is no exit out for him. In other words, you know, you can't diplomatically retreat because that would be like admitting defeat. And he will never do that. He'll, you know, he would give up anything before that. So it's as bad as it has seemed for some time. Wow.
0: What was the transition, Anthony, from from covering uh, different beats for McLean's to uh, becoming editor. How did that happen? Well,
2: you know, you get to points, everything's kind of cyclical. And uh, after a while I started, you know, I'd always said, I'm a reporter. That's all I do. I write stories and I like to tell them. And I'd said that for years and I'd had a couple of offers from other places. So, no, no, no. And then I finally got to the point of thinking, why is that all I do? You know, why instead of just filling two or three pages of the magazine, why don't I think about whether I could have, you know, play this active lead role in everything that goes into the magazine. And that was at the, you know, I started thinking that as our editor and old friend, really, Bob Lewis, who's still very active around things as, as Bob was moving on up within the Rogers chain. So, um, you know, I pursued that thinking, you know, everything, you know, lots to gain but, and nothing to lose because if that doesn't happen then I'm having a lot of fun doing what I'm doing. Also, though I was about to become a dad for the first time and I thought, you know, not getting on planes, as I said, that's now a very good thing.
0: And as editor of the magazine, it's it's all at your fingertips, right? From the cover to the content to the way it looks to the the position <laughs> that the editorial position that it takes, it's all in your hands, correct?
2: Yeah, everything is there. I mean, you do it in consultation, of course, with your senior editors, you're talking with your publisher, you're taking a lot of factors into account. But yeah, you're really sort of deciding how, you know, will you turn the volume all the way up to 11 to, you know, to sort of make a big noise or, you know, what sort of approach will you take a subtle low-key approach to a certain kind of story? The trade-off that's funny is that you lose that, you know, that direct contact that you have with senior people, you know, they're going in and seeing prime ministers on a regular basis or otherwise. And that was one of the things, you know, I went into that job, which I did for four years, and I remember coming home on the day of the appointment and saying to deirdrum to my wife, you know. So that's the first day of the last job that I will have in journalism. You know, I resolved then I was gonna do it for anywhere from four to seven years. And as it was, I was lower end at four, and you know, I'm
0: very happy at that, and then moved on. What was your most controversial cover?
2: Oh boy, um, not really. That's a good question, and I don't have a good answer, really. You know, in a way, it's funny to, you know, there's a lot of pressure to run what's called soft covers at times, or there's a feeling like, you know, in other words, the social one, you know, why cats are better than dogs, kind of thing. <laughs> right. Well, the old line that came out of somebody with the founder of People Magazine, who used to talk about the formula for what sells in, in the magazine world, and similarly, by the way, online now, which we used to, was something to the effect of, movie stars are better than athletes. Athletes are better than television stars. Television stars are better than local figures. Um, you know, drama is better than comedy. And anything better than politics except world events, which are the worst of all. So, in other words, anytime you were making a decision to, you know, you thought, here's a really big world story and I want to, you know, I want to give it a big ride. Then you're also thinking, I have to accept the fact that cover sales will be, newsstand sales are going to be maybe 25% if I ran, uh, you know, something on the wonderful rick mercer or otherwise so you're kind of dealing with those tensions all the time and having been of course outside as a correspondent for so long your gut tells you
0: i want to do the international story but it doesn't always make sense it must have been those must have been difficult decisions because there were you know like when a big decision affected the country you know whether it was mulroney with the free trade agreement or whatever uh you know you you you, you couldn't put like charo on the cover when that was going on right <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, and I always remember, you know, this is before I became editor, but the longtime editor of Plains who hired me, a guy named Kevin Doyle. I was in Moscow at the time, and I came back to Canada for a visit, and it was the weekend of Tiananmen Square, uh, you know, which a lot of people remember the killing by the Chinese government of a lot of dissidents uh, in the public square. And that was on a Saturday, and on the Monday, the magazine came out, and it was the cover of the start of the Blue Jays season, as I recall, and that was the big cover. And I went in to see him about a day after that when I landed. And he was pacing around his office, just agonized. And he said, That's just like he was killing himself that he'd gone with the commercially viable cover. But he said, you know, it was a Saturday. I was alone in the office. I was trying to evaluate how serious this was. I knew one, you know, I knew what would do well at the newsstand, but I was trying to figure out how serious this was. And he was just beating himself up. He said, I just, you know, I just can't believe I made that call. And he's probably the only person in the world who sweated it, but he sure did, and that's what made him good. Oh. Do you miss magazines? I miss them. Yeah, I do. I'm a big online, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually an iPad guy. So I still yeah. read stuff and I take a, a lot of subscriptions and I'm actually pretty comfortable reading on there, but it's that it's the long form material that's a lot less of, and I do miss that.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, let's, uh, let's take a break before we have dovetail into a, uh, a couple of more topics. Anthony Wilson-Smith is uh, our guest, and uh, we've got a a number of sponsors, of course, uh, to thank. We can't do this without our uh, sponsors, and I want to take a moment to say thank you to the UPS Store Canada, uh, David Drucker, and the um, uh, hundreds, literally hundreds, of entrepreneurs across the country that run the UPS Store can help you with everything from uh, cookies for grandma who lives in uh, Brandon, Manitoba, uh, to sending important contracts to your office in Calgary, uh, or if you need to send uh, leftover stuff from the move across the country, like we did over a year ago now, uh, the UPS folks can handle that. There's a, a UPS Canada store in almost every location uh, or city around the country, probably within a stone's throw of where you are right now. And they can uh, help you, like I said, with moving with faxing, with, uh, they have that, uh, poppy, the, uh, the packing popcorn there to make sure that everything arrives, uh, unbroken. They have, uh, don't boxes. eat it
1: though. Don't eat it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't <laughs> eat it. It's not a good snack, uh, boxes, packing tape, everything that you could possibly need, uh, to either uh, further your business as a small business, uh, uh, owner, or if, like I said, you've got some stuff that has to go to family who've moved across the country, Uh, The folks at UPS uh, can handle that too. And like I said, they're all independently owned. They're entrepreneurs just like you. And if you need help with your small business, uh, just look for the UPS Store Canada near you. Just go to the uh, upsstorecanada.com and you'll find a location not too far from you. I have one about uh, two kilometers from my house and I know you do too, right, Ted?
1: Oh, I would imagine there's at least one handy on the West Island, probably more than one. I have a question, mister. Yes, sir. And it's a bit of a loaded question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, Anthony. How much do you think the internet in general and social media in particular has changed journalism and has the change been for the better? Uh, I'll
2: tell you the good and I'll tell you the bad. So they, you know... The good is that there is more quantity than ever before, of course, you know, umpteen times, impossible to measure. Like, you want to find out something, there's no end to it. The bad, of course, is you need to be able to assess what the quality, what the reality of that material is. And anybody can sound authoritative. And, of course, you don't know where anybody's coming from anymore on that. What's been a real challenge for people and I think has been detrimental is, so take McLean's as an extreme, which was a weekly. I have an assignment, I start working on it on the Monday, I'm gonna be writing on the Thursday or Friday, that story will change three or four times during the week in tone. And I have a chance to adjust to that and still do call follow up calls, maybe into the Friday, Saturday and fix it up. So I can allow my own view to evolve with the story. In other words, I'm not just writing to a headline I've been given. The problem now with the demand for immediacy, which I've always said is a kind of a false god over and above everything is, you know, something comes out, a press release, a declaration, something, and you write a story about it, and immediately you've declared a direction for yourself, and it's very hard. And that story may actually change factually dramatically over the next 24, 48, 72 hours, but you're kind of stuck in this hole unless you want to admit, you know, which is tough personally, and your organization may not like. Okay, I started off on a bum steer, and I'm going to fix it now and go the other direction. That's a hard call for people to make. The other thing is that you're so busy, you know, kind of updating the story that you're missing a chance to reflect on context. Now, having said all that, the other thing is, of course, being able to watch a story unfolding is, you know, is a luxury from a distance that we didn't have in the pre-internet world. So, you know, throw the balls up in the air and keep juggling on certain things.
1: Do you think journalists today still attempt to tell the objective, unvarnished truth, or do you think that that a lot of what we read now in legacy media is agenda-driven?
2: There's always been a sense that, you know, you'll do better in your career if you do where your editor would like you to go. And I've always said to people, if you're really interested in a story, read or watch or see in some way more than one source anything. But, you know, here in Toronto, we have the luxury, well, as you do in Montreal, the luxury of a bunch of papers. If I really want to know about Quebec politics, for example, I'll read the Gazette, I'll read the Journal, I'll read La Presse, and I'll read Le Devoir. And at the end of those four takes, some of which will be dramatically different. I'll feel like I've got a better sense of where you know, where things are going. It's a much tougher business because, frankly, there's way fewer people covering everything that's going on. The people who are covering it are very often paid a lot less. The career is not as engaging as it used to be. And your chances for advancement for anybody's who's ambitious is, you know, it's just they're not the same institutions. The one thing I will say I'm very uncomfortable with today, though, is the um, particularly... Is the journalists are actually encouraged to take positions, in other words, to express opinions, particularly in tweets. Yep. I don't like that at all. And you know, you'll see it frankly. I will I, I remain a fan of some a lot of some things that C B C does, but they've had a habit for years of of their, you know, their on air reporters just kind of extemporizing at the beginning or end or something. And that's not, you know, that's not where you should be. You should be going into it saying, Let me look at this, let me report, let me at least try to be objective in this, and then let's see
1: where things go.
0: It's a different world for sure. Yeah, and one of the things that troubles me, Anthony, on that topic is if you look at some of the—I um, I don't know how to properly put this—but uh, some some of the things that are taking place at some of the universities that are supposed to be training these journalists. Um, I I look at that and I think uh, you know I don't think it's because I'm 64 and you know in my day we used to do these things, but I look at some of the positions that some of the universities are taking. And they're cranking out people with particular points of view on social agendas, and that I think that th- that's troubling to me because uh, that's uh, that's not an objective. You know, a reporter that goes to a a story with a, a particular point of view isn't an objective, and and that that betrays a, a journalistic code of some kind. Don't you agree?
2: Yeah, it's a real change. And, you know, there's even a school of thought that says, um, you know, it's impossible to be truly objective because your background and a lot of things are tied up with it. So, you know, just get it out there and admit what you are. I think that, you know, I think it, I understand the argument. and I think it's a real mistake. I mean, you know, you have to at least try to be objective. But the problem and, you know journalistic schools take this into account is there's a real feeling now if you want to get ahead in the business the way it is now you have to build a personal brand you know you have to say something do something be something that sets you apart from everybody else and the obvious way to go in that very often is opinion so you know there's there's a kind of that sense that if you want to make a mark in that you know pick your pick your lane and keep following it
1: well, guys like so it- William L. Sure. Shirer and, and, and Walter Cronkite were able to be successful without doing that, just by being outstanding journalists. But I think maybe the existence of social media now just inspires people to uh – to try to be uh to try to stand out to have to be opinionated to to
2: yeah I mean, everybody having a platform in theory is you know it, you know is a pretty fair thing it's democratic it's lots of things but we follow you know the ongoing debate uh over and around twitter right now i mean what constitutes free speech versus you know what what about somebody's right to speak versus you know versus truth versus this versus that There are great debates taking place and they're very important debates the problem is that Most people couldn't give a rats about those debates. You know, they're just charged. And there's a lot of of data to tell you that people, you know, people in choosing the stories they want, like you choose the facts that are convenient to you, you know, and that's, you know, it's the old lies, damn lies, and statistics, right? You're going to go with, you know, those arguments that suit, and you're going to find a way. If you don't like, you know, if if you feel there's a legitimacy to the other side, or you have a sneaking feeling about that, then the easiest thing is to denounce whoever's saying, and say, wow, they're just following an agenda. So, That's a mess, too.
0: Um, Anthony, who was the first Prime Minister you met?
2: Actually, still in school, I remember I met Pierre Trudeau. He came in. um, We had a teacher who knew him slightly at Concordia in my final year, and I always remember him walking into a room. We'd gone to Ottawa on a a bus, and he he said uh, he didn't even announce himself. We still had our backs turned, and he walked in, and we just suddenly heard that familiar nasal voice saying... Good morning what are your hopes what are your dreams what do you want to be who do you admire tell me i want to know and it's funny and then we were all just electrified and then somebody asked him a question immediately about bill 101 and you just saw the sort of the mask drop over the face and the rest of the thing was you know was a lot of political responses by robert
0: oh um when was the first time you were in the pmo do you remember that
2: oh that would have been in mr Mulroney's era and um I knew Mr. Turner, but that was only after the fact. Uh, you know, of the prime ministers, I have a pretty comfortable relationship. Still, often enough, see Mr. Mulroney. The same would be true with Paul Martin. And actually, I Mr. Kratzian as well. Uh, I knew Stephen Harper a bit in Ottawa. But as you know, he's a much more um, private guy.
0: Really. Yeah. You know,
2: good enough relation, but uh, but just prefers to keep to himself. And I won't go. And I happen to know somebody very well. There's a good friend of mine who knows Justin Trudeau very well.
0: Terry. <laughs> I I I have yet to, the reason I ask, Anthony, is I have yet to uh, find an opportunity to uh, be invited or, or find myself in the prime minister's office. And as a person who loves politics and has an appreciation for the country and is very proud of being Canadian, I wonder if it has the same kind of effect when you're in the PMO that it would probably have if you were invited, say, to the Oval Office. Does it have that sense of, um, history and and sort of grandeur when you're you're sitting in the prime minister's office?
2: I've actually been in the Oval Office as well, not in a one-off with the Prime Minister, with the President, but uh, no the PMO doesn't, but that's a good thing, I'll tell you in my view, and it does have a lot of grandeur. One of the things about the American system we sort of forget or overlook is right, the American system is both kind of queen or king or governor general and political leader all wrapped up in one where we as we sort you know we split off the state duties. In the Governor General or by extension, the king, and then we leave the political part to the prime minister. But, you know, so I, I do prefer that because it means that you can feel critical of the incumbent in office without being made to feel as though you're, you know, betraying the whole nation or, you know, being disloyal in some way. So um, but when you go in the office, and let me say it flat out, I still continue to actually like politicians, just about all politicians I meet quite a bit and feel that you know they're often done a disservice or do themselves one and denigrating and what they do you feel a real sense in the air though that you are somewhere special you're aware that there are decisions being made in that office every day that will affect you know 37 38 million people down the road and you get some of that sense of responsibility that the person in office has to wear and it's you know in that sense i'm only sorry more people can't have the experience
0: how did you end up in the oval office who was president
2: Oh, it was an early—it uh, was an early trip. Um, we had uh, actually the president was not in the office at that point, so I'm trying to think who it was. It would have been Bill Clinton. Mm.
0: An impressive place, no doubt, though. Oh, sure. and
2: the, this again was you know pre-2001, and we yeah. you know, forget how much the world has changed in terms of overall security. You Didn't have to get buzzed in and out. Access to the grounds was pretty easy. I can't recall specifically, but. I think really if you had almost any form of ID, certainly journalistic ID, you could get in and move around quite comfortably.
1: Anthony and I, Anthony and I were recently at a book launch for Terry Mosher's uh, latest book on the 1972 Canada-Russia Summit Series. And Brian Mulrooney spoke at that. And he still got it, eh, Anthony? He's sharp as a tack. He was so smooth and and so well-spoken and so charming. I think all the ladies who were there are still uh, floating two feet off the air. It w- I was very impressed. I, had, I think I, I had once or twice before been in his presence personally, but I was I was really taken with him that evening.
2: And the thing is, of course, he didn't, you know, that wasn't even planned. As, no. You know, picked it up and ran with it. And every sentence flows out in fully complete sentences, proper things. He can still drop, you know, he can still drop a kill shot when he wants to, you know, very elegantly. Uh, and he does it as well, of course, equally well in both languages, which remains enormously impressive too. Probably, um, you know, after Pierre Trudeau, in a different way, you know, really the most you know impressive orator that uh, you know of, of fairly modern times. And at eighty-three, still bringing it. I was at something else again about ten days ago in Montreal that uh, he was speaking at, and he just ripped it off again.
0: Anthony, what led to um, what led to double vision? I'm interested in in how you became interested in that that whole era of uh, Canadian politics.
2: Yeah, that for those who for the many millions Terry who had read, <laughs> um, it's a it's a, the the full title is an inside look at the Liberals in power and. Yeah. Uh, I'd always been interested in, you know. I've always said that ultimately, governing government is about uh, however many P's it is. It's it's sort of policy, process, politics, and personality, and personality drives it to a large extent. How you get along with others, who you are yourself, how you do it. So, uh, you know. Uh, that was a time when being Bureau Chief of McLean's had a real, a real click. In other words, there were, you know often enough calls from publishers saying, do You want to do a deal. And my old friend Eddie Greenspan, was then the Globe you know, the Global Mail Bureau chief. And if anything, it had even more of that. And we got along well. We were already doing public speaking together. So we sat down and said, What well, we'd like to write about, you know? And are, you know, we're kind of interested in this ourselves and, you know, love to know more about the, how the process works. So let's do it. And um, finding a publisher at
0: that point was actually pretty easy.
2: And it did well, it's in Canadian terms. And you know, we got onto the bestseller charts.
0: It's, uh, it's a really interesting uh, point in liberal history that that Paul Martin, uh, Jean Chrétien thing that went on, be that what went on behind the scenes was uh, uh, at best uh, competitive and at worst quite ugly, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, and I do have something of a point of pride to, Still continuing to have pretty good, really, actually quite good relations with both. I still speak to both men, and i think one of a pretty small circle that does get along because of that. They really do get along like two cats in a sack. And, and um, you know, Paul Martin is one of my favorite people, really, in the world. Just so fundamentally decent. You've you've dealt with them, you know, just always sort of excited by the day, by ideas, about wanting to do good. And Jean Chrétien in his own way, much more kind of gruff and buff, but, you know, I mean, has devoted his life to public service. But, you know, Paul Martin, essentially, I mean, you know, Paul Martin wanted the PMO at a point when Jean Chrétien wasn't set to give it up. Their personalities and their backgrounds were dramatically different. And I've always said in some ways, the miracle isn't that they fell apart. The miracle really is that they managed to work successfully for about seven or eight years together until the wheels came off.
0: Yeah, the country was in great shape. When uh, when Paul Martin was finance minister and Jean Chrétien had his hands on the wheel, we we were in pretty good shape back then.
2: Yeah, and you know there wasn't a lot of kind of excess verbiage. You yeah. know, people who remember Jean Chrétien, he used to get mocked a bit for saying, you know, for the fact he always insisted on on bullet point memos, no more than one page in length, and before he made a decision. I remember talking to him about that a couple of years ago, and he said, you know. People like to make fun of that. But by the time I came into the office, there was not an important portfolio I, you know, in government that I had not had. He'd had what was then called Indian Affairs. He'd had finance. He'd had foreign affairs. You, know, you, you do the list. And he said, why do I need somebody providing me 20 pages of background material for each when I already know that? You know, Cut to the chase. Give me that and we'll go with it. Very similar, by the way, to how Winston Churchill ran the British government during the war. It was always one page, no more.
1: It's remarkable. Was- Sorry, Terry. It's remar- yeah. It's remarkable to me that that two of the things that I'll always most remember about Jean Chrétien, the Schewinigan handshake when he <laughs> when he choked Buddy in the baby hat there. and uh, and his his a proof is a proof. And when you have a proof, it's a proof that it's proven. Those two things actually added to his legacy in a positive way. Like everyone remembers both of those things fondly. That's how likable a guy I think he is.
2: Well, he had no pretense, and I remember going on one of the Team Canada trips, you know, where we were doing, we were going to Pakistan and India and a bunch of other places, and we were delayed by about 20 minutes because there'd been getting his vehicle out to the airport in the snow. But it also turned out that on, you know, as he'd left early, he wanted to have a beer, so he just directed the driver to have him stop by a tavern in the Byward Market, and he went in and had a beer with people, and he left. And there were no photographers, by the way, around. That's what was notable. Now, I'll tell you another quick story about one of the things I liked most, probably my favorite story ever, was covering the um uh, the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And I went over a bit in advance with a veteran and we toured and we did a lot, but but on the day of D-Day itself, I being the being the fool that I occasionally am, I managed to miss the media bus back from the cemetery where all the veterans where all cat is dead were buried and found myself as the only reporter who not even really noticed while Jean Chrétien was still there, and so were the veterans. And he spent about 45 minutes with no cameras around talking to any veteran who wanted to be seen with them when they went up, when they, when people took cameras and wanted to take their picture and said what an honor it was. He always said the same thing, no sir, no ma'am, this is my honor, this is your day. And uh, he was not looking for any credit, uh, he just cared.
1: Terry, I want to go down that road. Let's do a let's do yep. another commercial very quickly before we do. Yes. Uh, I want to express my deep resentment at Terry Demonte for not coming into town to do the podcast because I couldn't call Jaguar Land Rover Laval and say, "Hey, Demonte's in town. I'll need one of your vehicles to ferry him around." We've had the Land Rover Defender, we've had the Jaguar F Type, we've had the Land Rover Discovery Sport, and we've had the Jaguar F Pace which is Jag's SUV. Uh, Every time Terry comes to town, I go up there and I get one of their vehicles. Couldn't do it this time. So I'm, I'm I'm stuck with the Bavarian money pit. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, fortunately, knock on wood, it's gotten me to and from the studio so far this season. You should go to Jaguar Land Rover Laval. Even if you're not looking for a car, go up there and maybe pop in next door to McLaren Montreal as well and have a look at those supercars. They will welcome you with open arms, whether you're looking for a vehicle or whether you're in the market or not. They're good people. Nino, Nino. And Renato DeCubellis, salt of the earth people, they're the owners of Jaguar Land Rover Laval. And their attitude is sprinkled throughout that dealership. Everyone is treated with respect. Everyone is treated like family. And uh, the product speaks for itself. And that's why we always talk about the service you get there. We don't have to tell you about the product. They're Jaguars and Land Rovers, for crying out loud. They're some of the most beautiful vehicles on the planet. JaguarLaval.com and LandRoverLaval.com. Tell them that, that uh, Terry and Ted from the podcast sent you and, and that Ted wants to know if he can maybe take one of the new Range Rovers for a spin.
0: <laughs> when you get there, tell them Ted is full of resentment. <laughs> <laughs> but not against
1: them, against DeMonte. Oh.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, Anthony, to get back just to the the, uh, the Prime Minister thing one more time, one of the things that I think is is lost these days is, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, decency and, and, uh, and behavior have gone out the window when it comes to uh, discussing politics and, and, and politicians. And, uh, you know, I find myself in places where you, you, you start to talk about people like Paul Martin. Here's a guy. Um, is one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Always cheery, always, always kind to everybody that he meets, everybody who's around him. Uh, I last ran into him at an event that you invited us to. Uh, He just couldn't have been nicer to me me and my wife. And when you look at his history, that's a man of means who really didn't have to go into politics, but chose public service because he thought it was honorable and thought it was the right thing to do and thought he could make a contribution, and he did. And there's an awful lot of respect that I have for that man because of that. And that, that seems to have gone out the window these days when you, you talk about politicians, people don't wanna hear about that.
2: You know, well, first of all, absolute, you know, plus one times umpteen for, you know, love and respect for Paul Martin, when a thoroughly decent guy. And, you know, I remember meeting him early when he was finance minister. I knew him a little bit then. He gave me a very detailed breakdown of uh, of what a financial statement was gonna be like and then the lead I used for the story, because Paul is a bit of a, a techno geek, as am I. And this, you know, this will take people of a certain age, but I remember going into his office and the BCR in his office, the light with the time on it was flashing all the time, which was of course the old sign that somebody had absolutely no idea how to run it. And you know, and that was the lead I used just for a self-declared techno geek, something. He could have been awfully mad and he could have said, Why did I give this guy a lot of time? He, you know, he took the hit and the rest of the piece was very much on the issues he wanted to talk about, but he had that sense of humanity. I think, you know, I agree with everything you say about the lack of respect for politicians. The one area of criticism I have for them is to some degree they've invited it. You know, for example, Preston Manning, who can be a smart, thought, thoughtful, decent guy in a lot of ways. He used to tell all those sort of stories like what's the difference between a lawyer and a rat? And of course the punchline was favorable to the rat or to a politician and a rat, and the punchline was favorable to the rat and not the politician. And something Jean Chrétien did very well was he talked about taking pride in it. He did you know, two big themes. One was talking about the dignity of work for people and really reminding people what an honorable thing it is to do whatever you do for eight hours a day, as long as you you know you put yourself into it. And the other was to say, I feel good about this, you know, and people would say you're too old for the job when he came in. He said politics is the only business in which people say you have too much experience, which is nonsense, of course, you know. So he really went after that. And I think it's not a coincidence how fondly he's remembered. I mean, even, you know, if you poke Stephen Harper in a private conversation, he'll tell you the great respect he has for him as well, despite the fact they were politically on the opposite sides.
1: Is politics attracting the right people, Anthony? And has that changed over the years, do you think?
2: There are a lot of good people in there right now. I think that um, the level of scrutiny is beyond sort of what's capable. You know, you have what's happened now, though, is that you used to routinely, for example, have people who have had really successful careers and um, and then they would kind of get into late, their late 40s and 50s and say, OK, now I've done that. I want to try public service. And these were people making many times a politician's you know salary because of the level in their fields. You don't get those anymore because. You're now subjected to this level of scrutiny where you're likely to just say, you know, if you're having a good career, like, say, what do I need that for? Like, I'm going to leave my wife, my husband, my kids, you know, my, my personal life behind so I can go somewhere. So people I've never met will just take pot shots at me. You know? So I think there's a great feeling of, yeah, you know, just not for me.
1: Well, there's also that. an opportunity for people of when people look at a public servant's salary, a politician's salary now. You know, you, you go to the other end of the economic spectrum, and people could might be looking at that and going, Holy shit, I can make that much money if I get into parliament. I'm going to run.
2: Yeah. And that's a problem. You know, I mean, you want, it's just, look, it sounds to some degree, you want at least some of the people coming to be people who are taking a pay cut saying, I want to do this for the world. Well, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. Sure. Absolutely. That's true.
0: Yeah. And there's also, you know, the, uh, today, I mean, I, the way people, <laughs> It, it, my wife and I talk about this all the time. You see videos of of people, um, whether they're prime ministers or they're they uh, ministers with a portfolio. People holding up their phones and screaming the most vile things at people, and yet you know, yelling and screaming, and you know, whether it's tossing pebbles or you know, tossing you know, horrible language their way, you just wonder. You think to yourself, oh my God, why would anybody want to put up with this? You you have to have a thick skin and you have to be very, very dedicated to public service these days.
2: Well, you know, on the other field, frankly, where that happens now is journalism too. I mean, I left journalism yeah. at the point where it was still an awful lot of fun to do. You're aware of a sense of responsibility, but you could also just really enjoy yourself. And that a lot of that joy is gone because it's the same issues, you know, a lot of that dislike or just plain hate is being directed back at people not because of who they are but because of the stories they report and the perceived tone
0: whether that's what they really intend or not taken with it um anthony let's talk about your your current gig um when when, when i was a kid uh i remember watching tv in the afternoon and the, you know my first exposure to uh campaigns that tried to make us aware of the country was first of all there was Hinterland's who's who, yeah. you know the do, do, <laughs> do, 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 the humpback whale, the loon <laughs> is found, and 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 then I remember I remember seeing these sort of one act plays over the course of sixty seconds about what happened in our history, and I remember thinking, wow, these things are these things are really fascinating, and it's cool that we're starting to we're starting to recognize that Canada does indeed have a history um and uh and now it's uh it's quite the huge deal and you're the ceo of the place called historica canada can you speak about how it started and how you ended up in charge
2: we speak of course of the heritage men it's absolutely yes oh in fact montreal roots too and um you know um the direct creation of the much beloved still very active with us native montrealer charles Bronfman. so charles in the um In the late 80s, you know, in the wake of the first Quebec referendum and a lot of other issues, became concerned that people were losing a sense of what Canada was or or had never had it, arguably. You know, we were just kind of, well, we're not American, we're not French, we're not British. I guess we're kind of where, you know, this mix in the middle. And he still used a quote that still resonates now. He said, you know, every country has its myths and legends on which, you know, the story of the country is built. In Canada, we had those, but we weren't telling those stories. So he resolved to do it, and they went looking around and they formed a small group to talk about it. And either he doesn't remember, Charles said, either he or one of the other people around the table said, You know, if you can sell soap, detergent, or, you know, a kind of food in 60 seconds, why can't you sell a country? And really, out of that, it was born. So the early ones were, you know, I forget the precise order, but Jacques Plant and the goalie mask, you know, as the first goalie to wear it regularly just to kind of get mainstream interest in it. The remarkable story, which is still one of my favorites, of the three fellows from the same street in Winnipeg, all of whom won the Victoria Cross in the First World War. Jeez. So that, you know, since that street since renamed Valor Road, um, and on from there. And we've now made more than a hundred, of which I've been directly involved in about twenty-five.
1: Are there any particular ones, Anthony, that have resonated with audiences more than others that stand out to you?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, in broad, vast, broad terms, Ted. Sure, well, I think the first one that would come to mind of ones on my watch uh, would be in 2019. Uh, go back to D-Day again. We did uh, the 75th to commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and we did one on a fellow uh, in World War II who was uh, went back to war, um, went off to war when he was 39 on a on living on a farm in New Brunswick, by the way, Ted. Uh, you know, re-enlisted despite the fact he was a father, had kids. Certainly didn't need to do this. In fact, in some ways, was discouraged, and he stayed. You know, and he stayed through training and everything with his men. And said, "We need them." They kept saying, "You should go home now. You don't need to go into combat again." And um, he refused because he said, "My men need me." And he wrote letters home to that effect. And um, on D-Day, he led his men into battle, led them through a couple of towns, was killed in action. At uh, by then, forty-six or forty-seven. And last I checked which was about a year ago, his daughter, uh, you know, who lost her dad there for six or seven years of age uh, and had her life changed as a result, was still living around Montreal. Wow. And it was an example to me of how events that seem so far off so long ago before any of us are born continue, you know, whole towns are changed because of what happened then. All the boys, all the men and you know, some women who never came home, uh, all the people who lost fathers, husbands who grew up differently as a result. Towns, particularly that was North Shore Regiment, the head of your native New Brunswick. So all those small towns that never grew up the way they should have, because the leaders of the next generation were lost. And that effect is still lost today. And that's now that was seen in the first month alone of release by about seven or eight million people. And I you know, I hadn't seen latest figures, but we'd certainly be in the multiples of that now. That's
1: amazing.
0: That uh I didn't know that story about Valor Road. When I lived in Winnipeg, I lived blocks from Valor Road. I didn't know that, Anthony. I yeah, I lived there some years ago. And
2: the first thing I did was actually before I went to my hotel, I said to the driver, take me there just so I could see the sign and kind of
0: feel it. Yeah. Um, so what's the criteria now? Who who decides? I mean, you're the CEO, so I guess you have the final stamp of approval, but how how do you how do you decide? Because as you dive into history, there's a lot to talk about. Well, of course,
2: uh, everyone that's enormously popular is completely my decision. And, of course, those <laughs> fall, I can't imagine how that happened. They were out the day when I was away. No, I, you know, it does stop there. But um, they're a funny mix. So for anybody, before anybody sends ideas, which are always welcome, the first criteria for being in one is that you need to no longer be alive. We don't do them about uh, living people because... Um, they're too familiar in general, you know, and using an actor kind of takes away from the authenticity and some other reasons, too. Um, it has to be an event that changed the course of, uh, you know, helped shape Canada the way it is today. Sometimes not to good effect, uh, sometimes, of course, to very good effect and has a significant thing. And in recent years, frankly, we've focused as well on groups that have not had the same degree of attention, um, you know, in history. And that means specifically, of course, um. Indigenous peoples. So we did one earlier this year on the great Indigenous marathoner and war hero Tom Longboat from the First World War, who uh, you know faced a lot of discrimination along with his accomplishments, or despite his accomplishments. We have one out, just out right now, in fact, off to a good start on uh, on the great um, trans uh, transgender uh, singer Jackie Shane, who scored chart-topping hits in Toronto in the 1960s at a time when being black was a challenge, being transgender was unheard of. And uh, really move to dialogue. Do you but get
1: blowback when you go down that? Sorry? Sorry, Anthony. Do you get blowback when you go down that road, or have we progressed to the point where people are okay? Let's talk about this.
2: It's interesting. And, you know, there's been a couple of uh, notes in about that, not to the degree. I remember we went through this about four years ago when we released one on uh, the LGBTQ community and the so-called Egan case of uh, which went to Supreme Court over giving um, full, you know, equivalent of marital rights to, uh, to gay or lesbian couples. And I remember stealing our staff who were mostly young and saying, watch out for the blowback on this. And it never came. There's a segment of the population that doesn't want to hear and, you know, or, or gets really upset. There's some who are intensely supportive, of course. And then there's a whole lot of Canadians in the middle who are kind of saying, it seems to me, you know, let me hear the story, let me hear how this is. I just want to know. And uh, that's kind of what we're seeing so far. Our feeling in doing that, by the way, and excuse me for a longer answer, but, you know, history is always under attack in forms of things or how history is taught. And I tend to say that for Canada or really for anything, there's four central points to how we approach history. One is that this has been an absolutely fantastic country to live in for virtually a vast majority of people who either came here or were born here. But with the notable exception, point two, of, you know, demonstrable bad treatment of indigenous people. And also, you know, through laws and otherwise of people of color very often, people who came here at certain points. The third point would be that by any measure quantifiably that you look at, um, you know, there's much less discrimination in Canada today than there was at any point in our previous past, 10 years, 20 years, hundred years ago. But the other point to that is you can still look and say there's examples here where it has to get better. And the way in which you tell history to me, you know, If you miss any of those points, you're not giving a full picture, but you need to also tilt toward the fact of reminding people, you know, this remains a place where, you know, people are enormously proud and with good
0: reason. Do you find that most Canadians, I find most Canadians are somewhere in the centre?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, Canadians don't mind hearing about, um, you know, Canadians are prepared to hear about things that we need to do better. But they also, you know, you, you, you know I'm a principal in the magazine, business or anything else too, you need to remind people that things have gotten better, that there's always ways to improve. Like in other words, if all you just say is life sucks and everything's bad, Yeah, yeah, nothing's gonna happen, right? Then life really will suck and everything really will get worse. And, you know, um, I'm not an incurable optimist about things, but I will say having done 35 or 40 countries, you know, and travel, there's certainly nowhere I'd rather live.
0: Um, speaking of that, that's a good, a good uh, segue into what I wanted to ask you uh, next about, Anthony, and that's the that's the the uh, the Montreal thing that gets in your blood. Um, I I'm talking to you from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I love this country. I've you know I've lived in Alberta. I've lived in Manitoba. I was born and raised in Quebec. I was a proud Montrealer, and now I'm in British Columbia, and it's like I I can't drink enough of the country in. But no matter where I go, no matter where I've lived, and I know you think this too, because you often make reference to NDG. Uh, often, you know, yeah. scoot down four hundred one to Montreal, and yet you haven't lived there for years. And and my wife and I talk about this: the amount of the amount of time we spend talking about Montreal. In, in our home in the Fraser Valley in British Columbia, and the amount of time we spend looking for a hot dog and <laughs> trying to find a good bagel is absolutely absurd. What is it about Montreal that gets in the blood that makes you and me and thousands of other expats long for that city?
2: Well, you know, and I'll say the first part does lead into a second part I've been in Toronto for years now and I love it. It's got a lot of charms, like I really, really fun, but tell you a story, you know, when I met my, you know, when I met Deirdre a million years ago, we got along immediately, it was, you know, just felt I think immediately like, this is, you know, this is great we're going to continue this. So we had a discussion one day early and I said to her, you know, in as much as we're, you know, this matters, we are the same religion and, you know, uh, that, you know, for whatever it counts, but, I do need to, I want you to agree to one thing, and there's a need of Toronto and that's that any children that we have will be raised as Habs fans. <laughs> <laughs> and she agreed, she agreed immediately. And our, you know, our daughter who's now in law school at 24 would not really identify as a sports fan, but if you push her, she'll say, you know, it's, you know, I'm a Habs fan, and. When PK signed his long-year deal, long-term deal years ago, she was the one who contacted me with an urgent, you know, urgent instant message saying, PK just signed, just signed. And my son, our son, who's 21, who was a very, very good hockey player, you know, was born in Toronto, then lived in Ottawa, then came back to Toronto and remains a resolute fan. So yeah, it's just it's in your DNA. But there's a charm, you know, um, there remains a charm to the actual on the street, you know, you know, the fact of a multitude of languages, particularly, of course, uh, you know, French paramount among like on the, you know, on the street, it continues to work if we leave, you know, get away from language laws and yeah. things. Yeah. There is a really specific feel. And, you know, I lived three years in Quebec City as well. And um, I always said that when I went there early in my career, yeah, my French wasn't as good as it is now, but you know, I could get around. I never faced discrimination in Quebec City as an Anglo. Where I got hammered all the time was that that was when the Nordics were still there. And for being a Habs fan, <laughs> they just beat up on me. So, you can, you know, and in the course of my career as a reporter, I've done everywhere, I think, literally from Shibugumu to Shikutami to Matan to, you know, uh, Amqui and Matapedia Valley and a bunch of places beyond. And there's really nowhere like that for such a combination of things. You know, it's just it really just gets in
0: your skin. A lot of people have said to me, "Oh Tara, it's just because it resonates with you because it was your childhood." Uh, because I do what you do. I know when you go back to Montreal, you like to drive through the streets of NDG oh, yeah. and 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 see the rinks and all of that. But I there's it, there's more to it than that. It's it's not just about your childhood. I, I don't know what it is. You know, I suspect Winnipeggers feel that way when they go back to Winnipeg, but there I don't know, there's just there's just something odd about an ex-Montrealer. That, as my wife would say, she's experienced here. Somebody said to her, you know, you ex-Montrealers are a pain in the ass. You're always talking about the city.
2: (laughs) Well, I remember, you know, our friend Island Terry Mosher, you know, years (laughs) years ago doing a memorable cartoon. And he was making fun of, uh, I think, reactions to multiculturalism or something. You know, Terry being in favor. But, he, you know, he did one of just two people looking at each other and saying it used to be so much easier when it was just us, them, and the Irish. You know, it was kind of this Mm breakdown. And then we watched and saw the city change so much, you know. And I watched and lived through it, and it became, I think, you know, more dynamic, more exciting. And you know, having grown up, and certainly NDG is where I my roots, you know, always return. And I, yeah, I do that drive along Cavendish, along yeah. Simplot, and you know, and past the old arena where I played very badly and then coached for a long time. And you saw, so you know, I, there's not a rink in Ontario I don't think I've been into, but there's still a special magic to those.
0: Yeah. My wife said to me last night that we were watching the Habs game. Of course, out in BC, you watch the Habs game at 4.30. Yeah. Um, and we were watching the Habs game, and she said to me, you want to order a pizza from B&M? And I said, well, yeah, we could order a pizza from B&M and NDG, but it's going to take a while to get here. <laughs> you know, it, just, it, never, it just never seems to end. It's just something I thought I'd ask you about. Because we touched upon it briefly. When when you and I uh, and Jess had, had lunch in Toronto – and you seem very at home in Toronto and I, I too love Toronto and you've been there for a very long time, but, uh, you, you like me, you like to drink from the, the fountain that is Montreal every once in a while. I yeah, wonder,
2: uh, sorry. Guy. Multicultural place too. But, you know, I think of, so I'll give you an example from historic we have four staff members in, in Montreal now, and one of them, you know, is about 24 or 25, uh, born in Hong Kong, came here at an early age with his parents. Speaks Mandarin and Cantonese, speaks perfect English and French, and he's a Germanophile, so he's picked up German as well. Jeez. You're not finding that in a lot of other cities around, like that degree of, you know, and it's that sort of, you know, ben on commence en français, puis on va ajouter another, you know, autre mot in another language, and then yes, sir, at the end or something. It's like it's all mixed up in there.
0: Yeah. Um, here's a, a, the last question I want to ask you because uh, I talked about this with Jess. Who, who gets to call you Tony? Because I, I know some people call you Tony. I've never called you Tony. I, it, does everybody call you Anthony? It's a, it's well, not a funny, amusing story.
2: When I was a kid in NDG, it was either Anthony or inevitably when you play hockey, they just cheat with your last name. So I became Smitty, right? Yeah. When I was moving to Quebec City, I resolved to myself. I just said, I can be called many things in life. I will not be called Antoine. I just will not. I just like... <laughs> It's not a bad name, I just can't let that happen to me. So in journalism, I picked it up and became Tony. So people who have worked with me professionally for years will say that. People from NDG will say Anthony. People from journalism particularly will say, of course you may know my other two nicknames are just Tony two names for the Wilson Smith or Tony hyphen hyphen within. And I fall back to the, you know, call me what you want. Just don't call me late for dinner online. I mean, never bothers me any of those.
0: Yeah, I can't, I can't, it was one night we were watching, you were on a panel, as you often are, um, and, uh, and somebody said, thanks, Tony, and we said, who gets, to?" I don't know who gets to call him Tony, I don't know what the history is, so. Whoever (laughs) wants,
2: whoever wants the Anthony, or whoever wants something, nothing offensive, we're good with
0: it. Anthony, I can't uh, thank you enough, this has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun, um, we covered a lot of topics, and, uh. Uh, I just, I, I really enjoyed having you and I can't thank you enough for the time. Again, uh, you know, we've wanted to have you on the podcast since the first season and we came awfully close last season until we had a technical issue. So you've been very patient with us. I, I can't thank you enough for spend- Always
2: the seriously love hanging with both of you guys separately or together. I'm going to do one excuse to your other sponsors, but I have to do a final shout out to my friend, Louis, who is the, um, who is the courier driver from Guess What Company.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't want to say the wrong company
2: <laughs> Oh it's the right company It's the right company it is UPS store Louis the UPS driver Who never comes to my house Without a, a package of dog biscuits For Ted our 13 year old German shepherd border collie rescue dog And is just the most efficient guy in the world And they're a friendly bunch
0: Wow isn't that nice Please tell Louis we said thank you I'll pass it along, and if I can,
2: I will. I'll be prepared to see very nice things if I get use of a jag in the future. Sometime
0: too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anthony, thanks so much, and uh, uh, we'll we'll Boy. talk soon. Yeah, like, uh, look forward to our next breaking bread together. A bientôt. Okay, salut, salut, Antoine. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun having Anthony Wilson Smith on. I I have to tell you, when I first met him, I was very very intimidated. Because he's so, he's erudite and he's, you know, he's just, he's such a bright guy. And then you learn that he's a very decent, kind, wonderful, warm man.
1: He's disarming is what he is. Yeah. He makes you feel and, at ease as soon as you meet him.
0: Yeah. And and what a history he's had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, what did he say? 40 countries.
0: Yeah. 40 countries. And, uh. You know, I've been lucky enough to have, uh, you know, lunch and dinner with him. And uh, he tells some great stories about, you know, guys in the CIA and, you know, some of the, you know, the Russian guys following him around. And, you know, who knew there was a military camp in Vermont? I didn't know that. Not a clue, sir. <laughs> yeah, not even close. Maybe we shouldn't talk
1: about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ixnay on the <laughs> Yeah, Ted. Um, and uh, what I also like too is we we managed to steer clear of uh, of uh, heavy politics. But I, geez, I found him so, he's such an interesting man. What well, listen, really,
1: really, we, we I think we could have gone deeper into heavy politics because sure. he he can he can discuss them objectively. He's not Yet. he's not strident and he's intelligent and he's well informed. And his uh, uh, any any opinion he would have would be would be a knowledgeable one.
0: Okay. Um, before uh, we wrap up our, uh, our uh, edition of this uh, podcast, am I speaking English? I'm, I'm not sure if I'm still speaking English. I understand you. And it's the okay, only language ahead.
1: I speak with any kind of, uh, of uh, thing. <laughs> 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 I used to anyway. <laughs> speaking <of> erudite, <laughs> Yeah. Malinois. Now I'm just <laughs> illiterate. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to say thank you to our friends at Met Lab L'Honneur. I was, uh, I was wondering, because we were giving out the promo codes, and uh, I was wondering uh, if anybody was going to go into a Matlab on our store and give our promo codes, um, which is the Terry code and the Ted code. One was T-E-R-O-4, and the other one was T-E-D-O-5. And uh, apparently, people went in, and I hope you know they didn't just walk into the store and go, Terra 04, <laughs> <terror> 05. <laughs> I, I hope they made it clear that they listened to the podcast and were looking for their uh, uh, their discount with that. You don't even need that. If uh, you're looking for a new mattress and a better night's sleep, I suggest that you go into a Matlab on our store. I know there are other places to buy mattresses. I say this all the time. Uh, but we um, uh, we just have a special relationship with those people. And when you go into the store, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's a family-run business who pride themselves in service, pride themselves in the knowledge that they have about uh, sleep science and all of the latest technologies that there are for sleeping. And, yes, there is a sleep technology. Uh, they can do anything from uh, make sure you have an, uh, a mattress for the guest bedroom to making sure they change the way you sleep. If you've been sleeping on a mattress that's 10 years old, you've been sleeping on that thing for too long. Go in and have a discussion with them. They'll ask you a couple of questions. It's a great shopping experience. It's a great atmosphere to buy a mattress in. They'll ask you a couple of questions, give you some information and then leave you be. They won't follow you around, and pressure you. It really is a wonderful shopping experience. And they're all over the greater Montreal area, stores everywhere. My friends at Bonheur. you can also find them online, of course.
1: They're the Mersons of the mattress world, Ter.
0: You are correct, sir. How's that for a segue? Uh, You know, it's getting more and more impressive. I've known you for a long time, Ted, and you just get more impressive every day. Five minutes ago, I couldn't put a sentence together. (laughs) But
1: I want to talk a little bit about the Mersons because they, like Met La Bonheur, are a, a local company run by local people. And uh, tell the story about uh, how Mark Merson came up with uh, um, the owner at the counter as uh, as a selling point and a, a kind of a
0: tagline. What?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you well, told no, me you that story, what? but when you first started, well, uh, when you first started doing advertisements for Mark. Yeah
0: had we had a conversation about you know how the fact that when you go into a business if you have an issue if you take your car for example to a big box store uh, you know or one of the national chains or something and you have an issue uh you get you get turned over to an office in Toronto that people say well you have You'll have to contact Al, who's our, our uh, person in Toronto, or send an email to uh, we don't give a shit <laughs> And you 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 don't get to have anything resolved. And we're not saying you're ever going to have an issue uh, with the Mersons, but if you've got a question about what they're doing or why they're doing it, or you know you you take it in for something and you come back and the the buzzing sound is still there, whatever it is. The owner is at the counter. That's what happens when you deal with a family run business. The, the owner is there for you to deal with directly, and, and you don't have to send an email to who gives a shit.com. And they'll deal
1: with you honestly and with integrity, and that's why they've been in business for three generations. They specialize in tires, and it's winter tire season. Uh, Ask Mersons about uh, the Yokohama Ice Guard winter tires and the Nokian Hakapalita line, including the Hakapalita 10 and the R5. Those are the two brands that they specialize in. And anything else you need done to your car in terms of repair and maintenance, Merson can handle it, and if they can't handle it, they'll send you to somebody who can, and they'll send you to somebody who, like them, operates with honesty and integrity. Uh, they're on St. Jacques, just west of Cavendish, and they're online at com. By the way, did I tell the right story? Yeah, well, basically, uh, no. <laughs> 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 we'll tell it another time.
0: <laughs> when you said that to me, I'm like, oh, shit, Ted wants me to tell
1: a story and yeah, I don't let's, remember. <laughs> yeah, what's he, what's he talking about?
0: What story is that?
1: <laughs> I was just trying to segue, man.
0: Yeah, well, he did a nice job. Um, well, that's it. Uh, so far uh, for uh, this season, I think it's it's gone relatively well, uh, considering that we're uh, not sitting across from each other, gazing into each other's eyes, Ted. Yeah, but uh, Poseidon's had
1: his uh, hand on my leg for the whole show, so <laughs> oh, man, right. you're not missed.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, damn um that's uh that's the end of the episode thanks for joining us my thanks to uh my wife jessica because she helped me set up uh all of this i'm i'm in her i don't know if you can see behind me yeah if you're watching this on youtube i'm i'm in uh uh jess's music room and uh does she play yeah, those guitars yes, she plays those guitars wow. and she plays the drums <laughs> <laughs> and uh and you can't see it behind me there's i don't know if you can see it. There's it. a keyboard and a record collection and um this is uh this is for now the studio in the Fraser Valley well we where will we will continue <laughs> yes we uh, will season 4 <laughs> if i can uh if i can put my tongue back in the right place thanks for joining us my thanks to Poseidon my thanks to you Ted Bird see you later you can print ship and more at the UPS store the upsstore.ca